Welcome, Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker, along with my co-host, Luke Benke. This is the podcast where we recap some of the most interesting and impactful legal stories of the past two weeks. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We publish every two weeks. Luke, what do we have up this week? Uh, Really interesting story. Uh, Litigation funding surged in 2022. And as a follow-up to an episode a couple weeks ago where we where I hated on artificial intelligence as applied to the legal industry for about 30 minutes. A story of an abuse victim who is utilizing artificial intelligence to help represent herself against her alleged abuser in about a dozen different lawsuits. All that and more, here's what you need to know. Companies that finance U.S. commercial lawsuits in exchange for a cut of any recoveries reportedly upped their investments last year committing some $3.2 billion to the practice. This, according to a recent report from a litigation finance advisory firm called Westfleet Advisors. Now, many of our dear listeners may not realize that litigation funders are out there. These funders provide financing for individual lawsuits or even case portfolios in exchange for a share of any settlement or court judgment. Sort of like a venture capitalist, except instead of financing risky startups in the hope that some pay off, these funders are actually financing lawsuits. So the CEO of Westfleet Advisors said there are likely several factors driving this growth, including a rush to bring cases that were delayed as a result of the pandemic. He also cited inflation from higher law firm billing rates and litigation expenses. Though, uh, if litigation funding is on, you know, primarily on the plaintiff's side, um, I'm not sure how, you know, the, the billable rate would come into play. But I digress. As the industry has grown in the United States over the past decade, backers say that litigation funding can level the playing field and promote access to justice. On the other hand, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and other critics want tighter regulation, arguing that the practice promotes unnecessary litigation and undermines transparency in the legal system. In fact, two years ago, in March of 2021, several members of Congress introduced the Litigation Funding Transparency Act, which requires or would require plaintiff's lawyers to disclose third-party litigation funding agreements, at least in federal class action lawsuits and multi-district litigation. Several states, including Wisconsin, where I am, have passed laws requiring disclosure of third-party funding agreements. And the Federal Rules Advisory Committee for the U.S. Courts has considered amending the federal rules to require disclosure of third-party litigation funding in all civil cases. Those who want to rein in third-party litigation funding in the United States want essentially three things. Number one, third-party litigation funding agreements to be disclosed to all parties in litigation. Uh, The thought there is it would minimize conflicts of interest and ensure that uh, plaintiffs retain control of their case instead of handing it over to somebody with a financial interest. Two, uh, fee-sharing agreements between lawyers and non-lawyers should be banned, as several bar associations have already done, uh, to preserve independent professional judgment. Uh, And third, uh, this sort of funding shouldn't be permitted in the class action context because the sort of funding creates a potential obstacle to class counsel and named plaintiffs satisfying their fiduciary duties to the rest of the class. Now, Jack, I think this is really interesting. I know that uh, you had done a few stories on litigation funding back in 2022. Um, and this, you know, the fact that this is sort of surging reportedly um, 
is part of a much larger discussion and it's something that I'm going to follow and keep an eye on as we as we do these podcasts together. But what I think is interesting is that um, it, it's possible that we're only scratching the surface here, right? I mean, this this story says um, litigation funding surge by what, $3.2 billion. I, I don't think anybody really has any idea what that actual number is because it, it isn't regulated, right? I mean, we could be, we could be much higher than that. Um, we, we don't know sort of what kind of litigation funding is out there. And I'm trying to balance my own bias as a, you know, spoiler alert, everybody, I'm a defense attorney, um, with the fact that, you know, how do I feel about um, folks maybe potentially being barred from the system because they can't afford to litigate? Um, on the one hand, I'm like, well, that's, you know, I became a lawyer because I believe in due process and that that shouldn't be the case. If you've got, you know, a meritorious, you know, colorable claim or argument or case, you should be able to have your day in court. On the other, we're fooling ourselves if if we think that, you know, uh, resources aren't a big factor in litigation. Um, I mean, they drive a lot of decisions. And in fact, you know, it's not they're not all bad. Right. I mean, resources oftentimes and I, Jack, I don't think you disagree you know, drive sort of settlement discussions, right? I mean, I tell my clients all the time, hey, look, this is going to cost a lot of money. You know, maybe we should talk about, you know, finding a resolution or, or whatever. I mean, that's not an uncommon discussion to have with your clients. Um, so uh, for now, stuff like this is just really, really interesting that you can essentially, uh, you know, maybe crowdfund these lawsuits or sort of be, become a venture capitalist in these lawsuits. And you're kind of betting on, you know, these great outcomes. Uh, I don't know what that does for the for the legal profession, right? I, I don't know which way that cuts. I don't know if that makes it more likely that a plaintiff's going to lose control of their case. Um, you know, you're, you're going to introduce a bunch of other actors into this system that we already have, and maybe that gums up litigation even more. I don't know. There's a lot to unpack and think through. Uh, but for now, you know, we know that it's here. It has been here. It's growing. It's getting larger. And um, at least at the, you know, at the federal level and the state level, uh, you know, folks are taking notice and they're, they're starting to kind of regulate this, uh, this really lucrative industry. What do you think, Jack? Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's so much to talk about. Um, I'll start with the discussion about, you know, is a plaintiff going to lose control of their case by surrendering their interest to another party? Yeah, I think that's um, interesting. That's uh, that's something that I'd want to talk more about. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the fee arrangement, frankly. Um, if it's a straight up, let's you know, let's boil it down to kind of a simplest scenario, at least where I've seen, which is like a personal injury case. Plaintiff's attorney's working on a contingency, which means they get paid out of the verdict or settlement a certain percentage, usually two thirds, sometimes forty percent, you know, depending on the jurisdiction, whatever. Um, the plaintiff in this case, in this hypothetical case, oftentimes will, if it's a personal injury case, maybe they can't work. Um, or they can't pay their car, they can't pay their rent, et cetera. Uh, and so they go and they, 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 what are their options? Well, they're not allowed, according to um, the ethical rules in, in every state that I know and, and the ABA model rules, they can't take out a loan from their lawyer, right? Um, you know, generally, if, you're, if you can't work, you have no income and you're involved in a personal injury lawsuit, you probably don't have great credit at the time. So you're not going to go get a, you know, a loan from the bank, Um so what are your options? You could borrow money from friends and family to, to cover it. And by the way, if you're involved in a lawsuit to verdict, 
in certain jurisdictions. That could be two to three years um, where you get nothing. And so that's where that's where the demand for these services comes from, is inherently the inefficiencies in resolving the underlying dispute. Um, so, you know, they'll sign up with these litigation finance companies um, and get themselves what's, what's called a case loan uh, in common parlance, which then gets reimbursed out of the verdict or settlement or whatever. Um, I don't, I'm not so worried about, in that case about folks like, you know, quote unquote, losing control um, of the outside financial interest because the lenders, um, I know from the industry that default rate's super high. And like, you know, if you, if you don't get a verdict or a settlement, you're, what are you going to do? Go after this person who is, you know, ostensibly disabled and has no income for the loan. I mean, you know, that person is probably judgment proof. So the lender is probably just, you know, out of luck, um, which is why the rates are so high, by the way, but that's a separate discussion. So, I mean, I don't know. I could see it being like, you know, it introduces a third party interest into the case. I understand that. But in most common scenarios, I doubt it. Now, in more complex funding scenarios, maybe. Um, and, you know, the example I gave is pretty uh, rudimentary you know, in terms of uh, personal injury type settlement funding, but like there's all kinds of products now. There's defense products. Um, there's defense litigation financing. Um, there's there's all sorts of ways in which people are seeking to financialize uh, the massive amount of money that's exchanged in our in our court system. Um, I wish I knew that not what that number was, but if you're like a, a VC or a, a um, private equity, I mean, you're looking at that as like an untapped cap capital market of however many tens of billions of dollars for which there are pr very few financial products and services that are, are being, you know, the, the potential to, to, to go further into this is like massive, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I understand this. I understand why the Chamber of Commerce is against class action funding, because they're the ones that are being named in the class action suits. And, um, you know, the argument from the litigation financiers will be that it allows us to level the playing field because an uninsured, you know, poor indigent person who has no money um, can't sustain a long protracted legal fight against a company that has insurance and in-house counsel and all kinds of liquid assets and everything else. So to give credit to the other side of that argument, that's what they would say is like, we help legal level the playing field in that regard, whether you believe that or not, you know, up to you. Yeah, it's. I'm not surprised that money is is flowing into this this market in particular. I mean, we just got out of the stupid NFT bubble, uh, and, and like and like slash crypto bubble, and like we're now see like these and you know the VC class and investor class is is looking for growth opportunities, and this is like a lot more tangible and concrete than you know board eight NFTs, um, and so. I so I think that you'll see a lot more of it and what, you know, how the ABA treats it and the, your local bar association is going to be important because it's the money's going to find its way there. It, it has to. I think the distinction between, you know, leveling the playing field and gumming up the litigation, I think that line is is razor thin. Um, I, the, where I see this potentially becoming a problem, and I've encountered this in some of my cases, is when you've got a case that actually makes it to mediation. Right? We're not talking about going all the way through to a verdict, but the case gets to mediation and everybody in that room, except for 
the litigation funder agrees that the case should settle for a certain amount. So I'm curious to see what plaintiff's lawyers uh, think about, you know, these litigation funding systems, because I know, you know, before this, it was just sort of, look, we're doing this on contingency. Uh, The plaintiff's firms would be telling this to their clients. We're taking on a big risk by sort of, you know, fighting your case, because if we lose, we get zero, you get zero. Nobody gets anything. Right. And we lose a bunch of money fighting this case. But if we win, we're going to take a pretty big cut, 30 to 40 percent of your award. And so they were sort of just the de facto kind of litigation, you know, funders. Now you've got someone else at the table. And I've got to imagine that makes the plaintiff's attorney's job more difficult. Um, On the other hand, I don't know, maybe they're a referral source for one another. And like anything else, it's it's sort of like, you you know, you can work together and and collaborate and, and get a good number. Um, I'll, I'll say from experience on the plaintiff side that one of the pressures that I think is probably underappreciated is uh, on the defense is like the plaintiff's lawyers uh, obligations to keep these people um, happy and, and to, to really help them navigate what can be. And, and for this, I'm talking about like a meritorious case, like, an, like a legit case. I know that we're all jaded on the defense side and think everyone's a faker and a phony. But like, let's let's assume for this, I'm talking about a real a real case. And, you know, like I mentioned before, someone who can't who can't meet their day to day financial obligations by no fault of their own. I mean, they got nothing. They got no options. They can't go to a bank unless they have savings, which no one does. Um, what are they going to do? And, you know, and, and then they come to you as the lawyer and are like saying, hey, you know, you're a big fancy law firm. You guys all have suits on in your pictures. Um, can you lend me some cash? And, and the answer is no, I can't. It's illegal. Uh, so what happens then? Um, that's, you know that's why I think the plaintiff's lawyers are, will, are, do, uh, uh, utilize these companies because it keeps their, you know, keeps their clients from losing their apartment or from getting their car repoed. You know, it's, it's a legitimate, uh, concern for a lot of these people. Um, and there's just, you know, ideally what you would do is you would have a, a, a swiftly, um, functioning court system that would quickly, you know, get to the point and, and judge the, get a verdict in ever, but like, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So here we are. And with more well-funded litigants, I think you're going to have, you're going to have more cases, I think last longer. Yeah, totally. So uh, that's, I guess that's sort of the point where it's like, you know, maybe gumming up the system is not, I guess, depending on what, what glasses you've got on, you know, what lenses you're looking through. Well, it's going to be both. I mean, there's, there's frivolous lawsuits we, we know, and there's meritorious lawsuits and there's situations where adding money to that pile is going to, you know, do one thing or the other. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that it will. It'll keep people in the fight longer on whatever case they have, I think, is the point. That's right. And that could be good or bad, depending on the, on the you know, facts of the case. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll see. We'll keep an eye on it. And uh, I expect there to be a, a lot more to come on this, uh, but just sort of, a you know, interesting interesting spot right now and sort of shifting landscape in our profession um, to see this kind of this kind of growing uh, business uh, happening. Uh, we and mostly I talked about our opinions on artificial intelligence maximalists who have been pushing to quote unquote replace lawyers or whatever with certain AI products. And if you listen to our episode from a couple weeks ago, 
you'll know that we think it's probably unlikely at the very least and probably illegal in the sense that a non-licensed algorithm can't practice law in any court currently anyways. But I did want to provide a positive, albeit kind of sad, use case for AI in a legal setting. In a Fast Company article published a week, the first week of March, the author tells a story of a woman named Ruth, it's a pseudonym by the way, whose husband became kind of more and more abusive over the course of the COVID pandemic. Ruth's husband recently graduated from law school, which makes him even worse because a recent law grad is perhaps the most annoying person you can bump into. And in retaliation for the restraining order that uh, Ruth filed against her husband, he became filing, he began filing his own TROs, appeals, other lawsuits, what seems like from the piece pretty frivolous filings here, with the goal seemingly to further his abuse of Ruth um, and to keep in contact with her uh, because she had, as part of her original filings, a no contact rule put in place. And for those of you that don't know, what that means is when there's a restraining order in place, you can get a no contact aspect of that restraining order, which will mean don't contact me except through these legal proceedings. So you can't call or text, etc. So what he seemed to be doing is filing these frivolous filings uh, as a way to um, maintain contact with her and maintain some aspect of control and further his abuse, which is it's really awful. Now, the piece discusses this type of harassing and vexatious filing practice by potential abusers and says that it's kind of common. It's a way, as I mentioned, for partner to keep in contact um, with someone who has otherwise done everything they can to get away from their abuser. And Ruth, in this case, says that she consults with lawyers from time to time, but she really doesn't have the money or the time to use them on every single one of these you know, frivolous filings uh, from her husband. Uh, she says in the piece that she is in court once or twice a month and is mostly representing herself. And this is the interesting part. To help against these filings, Ruth says she's using ChatGPT uh, to help her combat the mountain of paperwork that's being heaved at her by her recent law grad husband. Quote, I started asking about it, terms that I didn't understand that my husband would use in his filings, and it did a really good job, she says. The alternative was Googling the terms and the court cases it, he cited, which was incredibly time-consuming and still presented information written in legalese. ChatGPT came back with clear, concise answers to Ruth's questions. One challenge Ruth faced was learning how to write the best prompts for the technology. With trial and error, she figured out how to hone her prompts. For example, ChatGPT tries not to give legal advice and would answer some of Ruth's questions saying it could not give her legal advice and she'd have to consult with an attorney, she says. Wording the question slightly differently, however, would yield a satisfactory answer. She also had to learn to move away from generic responses towards those applied more specifically to her case. Can you please write me a declaration about domestic violence is going to be very generic, Ruth says, versus can you write me 1,000 words in first person in legal language about domestic violence in a case where the father is mentally unstable and has committed other financial and verbal abuse? Then you're going to get a much better output. Other prompts Ruth has posed to ChatGPT include provide a list of questions a lawyer could ask in a divorce cross-examination, and can you explain California Family Law 3044 in basic English, unquote. So the piece goes on to specify that Ruth often uses ChatGPT results as kind of an inspiration or guidance for her own filings, and ChatGPT hasn't been much of a help on some of the more deposition-centric questions. 
She's also using other technology uh, like uh, Watch It, which keeps tabs on her online case docket and Airtable as kind of a digital organizer. And interestingly, now she's sharing a tutorial on what she calls divorce tech with other mothers going through similar experiences to her own and says that she's helped two other mothers in similar circumstances by directing them to these online resources like ChatGPT. Quoting again, quote, I'm probably spending 20, 25 hours a week dealing with litigation, trying to find pro bono pro bono lawyers organizing all the documents because there's a bazillion documents, reading all of his lengthy filings, writing my responses to his filings, going to court to file the documents, showing up for hearings, even super frivolous ones, she says. But she lights up when she talks about the technology she's been able to employ in her fight and how she plans to spread the word to other moms. I'm just taking the tools that are around and applying them to my use case of legal stuff, unquote. I think this is a pretty cool and... Um, kind of an obvious case for chat GPT and other technologies in the legal industry. I know this is, you know, not being presented as a one for one lawyer replacement, but the technology service is stepping in to fill a space where legal service providers have really chosen not to go probably for financial reasons. Pro se litigants who don't have a lot of money on the line uh, are not a client group that many law firms target put another way. So this to me seems like a really good and helpful first use case for this AI technology. Luke, what do you think? Yeah, it's like we discussed last week, I, I think, or the, or the last time we did this episode, I, I think that AI has a place, right? And that's what I'm, I'm struggling to figure out what exactly this software is supposed to do. I think if it's supposed to be an earpiece, like, you know, that's in the, the helmets of the quarterbacks on the football field, uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. And I, that's not going to work. Uh, but if it's going to be a tool that folks can use that maybe aren't lawyers or even even that are lawyers, a tool to use to find, you know, answers that they need to use in these proceedings and find them quickly and, and the answers are trustworthy, you know, then I think that then I think AI has a place. I, I, I think it's it's terrific. And, um, you know, something that we mentioned when we were sort of talking offline, Jack, was, look, maybe maybe this is a tool that reaches a group of people that the available legal tools aren't designed to reach, right? I mean, the, the, the Lexus, Nexus, the Westlaws of the world, I mean, that, that's really expensive stuff, right? Law firms pay lots and lots of money for those resources. Um, if this is, you know, a cheaper way to, you know, deliver kind of legal research methods to the masses, I'm all for that. Yeah. And, and, I think that specifically referencing the episode we did about do not pay, um, which was the, you know, the service where they were advertising, we're going to put a earpiece in your ear and you're just going to puppet answer, answer the judge's questions with whatever the AI tells you. I think that this is like a much better application and a much more realistic application of the technology to the industry and kind of is, you know, doing what the founder of that company was trying to do. I mean, at a smaller scale. Um, but helping people in underserved uh, uh, populations, litigants, um, pro se litigants, folks in you know low from a from a lawyer's perspective, low stake cases, but at the personal perspective, extremely high stakes like custody um, or eviction or um, small claims or whatever, uh, giving them something to to arm themselves and to to fight with, I think is um, it's pretty cool. Uh, and it seems like, especially with this woman um, packaging this all together and, and, and teaching it to other folks um, who are in her 
unfortunate situation. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. And, and I would hope that um, something like that catches on, uh, you know, maybe companies address the space um, with their own products that are more specific and, and don't necessarily require you to cobble them all together. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, this is this is a good and I think realistic and sustainable step towards um, common use for this technology. That's the show for today. You can find us, as always, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any thoughts on any of these stories, let us know what you think. Until next time.